This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. One of the th- things that we kind of love to hate is ICBC. You could kind of put TransLink into that category too, but they've done a better job in recent years of kind of communicating and getting their message out there. With ICBC, you'd like to think we were on the road to doing that. We knew that it was going to hurt fixing all the problems that they've had, and certainly has been the case for many people who saw their uh, rates go up after all these changes that they brought into place there. But now we're hearing that their 2018-2019 financial report, which is out this morning, shows a total loss of $1.15 billion for the year that ended March 31st. Now, that wasn't supposed to be the case. The predictions had been actually uh, much less of a loss than that. So we're curious to know if at this point, are you surprised that you see such steep losses continuing? Do you look at that and go, yeah, like all the things that they have changed and everything that they've done, is this thing not fixed yet? Or do you go, no, it's a dumpster fire. What did we expect? Of course, it's going to be bad until we get this thing back on the road. So weigh in on our hot question of the day today. You can go online to Twitter, at CKNW is where you'll find the poll, or you can go to at Sarah 980 and weigh in there with your thoughts. You can also email me, simi at cknw.com. We knew there was going to be the pain. And there's, as I said, there certainly has been. Just think of all the stories you've seen in the last couple of months of people, particularly young people, who went to go and get their you know license renewed starting September 1st and were hit with those big, big bills. Now, that change isn't going to be reflected until we get the next financial year report. But for last year, when they had started all those, you know, capping injuries, capping payouts, uh, getting people to get more rehab instead of like getting a lawyer and all that kind of stuff, we thought that would make a bigger dent in ICBC's finances than it actually has. Instead, they're showing a total loss of $1.15 billion, about $400 million more than they had predicted. We are going to be talking more about that coming up to find out why, what happened. But for our hot question of the day, we just want to know, are you surprised by this? Did you think this was thing was going to be fixed or was better uh, managed at this point? Or do you think, no, still a dumpster fire? Of course. What did we expect? Cast your vote. Use our buzz line too. 604-331-BUZZ. That's 331-2899. Drop me an email, simi at cknw.com. We've already had more than 100 votes on this thing because we put it up about 20 minutes ago. 77% of people are saying they are not surprised to see such deep losses continuing because they said, no, it's a dumpster fire. 23% say, yeah, they are surprised. Isn't this thing fixed yet? This is quite simply a financial dumpster fire. Ah, famous words, right? That is Attorney General and Minister in Charge of ICBC, David Eby, a couple of years ago uh, when he took a look at the finances at ICBC and declared them to be a dumpster fire. Two years later, looks like the fire is still raging in that dumpster, at least what we're looking at from the numbers that came out today. The public insurer has released its 2018-2019 financial report, and that statement shows a total loss of $1.15 billion for the fiscal year that ended March 31st of this year. Now, that's a bit less than the year before, which was $1.32 billion, but that is more than $400 million off of their own forecasts. So what the heck happened here? Let's talk more about this now with the help of Richard Zussman, our Global News online legislative reporter. Hi, Richard. Good morning, Simi. Okay, so what went wrong? That's a big number to go wrong by. Yeah, a lot has gone wrong. But the big number in all of this is how much money ICBC has paid out to lawyers. So clearly there is a battle underway between the provincial government, 
along with ICBC, against the personal injury lawyers of British Columbia. We saw part of that settled in court last week when the injury lawyers got a major victory, when the uh, BC Supreme Court Chief Justice said that it was unconstitutional for the province to put in uh, the restrictions around expert reports. That blew a nearly $500 million hole into the ICBC budget. That's not factored in these documents at all. But what is factored into the documents is the amount that have been paid out to plaintiff firms. And based on the information here in the report, uh, I'm looking through, it's a thick one. (laughs) Uh, 42 personal injury law firms received $1.91 billion in payments. Uh, 1.73 billion in legal settlements, largely to people involved in car crashes. So it is a staggering number. It is a number that keeps growing. The provincial government can't get its head around how to restrict how much lawyers charge. And that's what this expert report thing was all about. Yeah. I think it's clear it is completely out of whack, but the lawyers say, you know, they're using the rules that exist. They are trying to get the best settlements possible. You know, for someone who's involved in a crash who deserves a settlement, I think they can only expect that they will get what is best for them. Right. But it's having a really tremendous impact on the public insurer's bottom line. And you know what, Simi? When companies lose money, where do they go? They go to the taxpayer to get it. So that's likely the province will run out of options at some point, and that will mean rates at ICBC will have to keep going up in order to cover these losses. Right. So that, as you said, it doesn't factor in that latest decision from BC Supreme Court. But things changed this September, right, where the different yeah. rate structure came in. Is that expected to have a big impact? No, zero. It's revenue neutral. So how that was built was that good drivers pay less, bad drivers pay more. Right. But when you put the money into the machine, it all comes out to zero. So that's that was a revenue neutral tra- uh, change to try to make things more fair uh, in terms of uh, those who have more experience get greater discounts. Those who have less experience pay more. I'm not sure that's fair for the family in Surrey who has uh, two kids who want to drive and have no experience. So they're getting hit with really, really big right. bills. And you know we've been reporting on those changes as well. But that change has nothing to do with the bottom line. What needs to happen here is a huge number of things. The province is trying to reduce the number of crashes. They are trying to reduce the amount of fraud. And they are now trying to reduce the legal payments, which seems to be based on that court decision, the toughest. The bigger changes were the ones that came in April in terms of affecting yeah. the bottom line. That's it could account for $600, $700, 800000000 million a year in terms of savings on a cap for uh, soft tissue injuries. That's working its way through the courts as well. I think the province is more optimistic. They will win that decision rather than the expert reports. Yeah. But, you know, if they don't win that, then we start at ground zero and the dumpster fire rages on likely uh, right up until the next election, which... You know, I think we're shaping up to be a discussion around ICBC. We saw a performance last week from David Eby uh, attacking the previous government for their mishandling of ICBC. I think that's the difference here, Simi. The previous government mishandled this, led to this problem. There were no real signs there of fixing it. At least this government is trying to fix things, although it's not going well so far. (laughs) Uh, But they are at least trying you know, we have another angle to the story we're going to do on the news hour tonight, which I think people will be really uh, oh, surprised okay. about as well, about sort of how deep 
some of these costs are and how challenging it is for the government to rein it all in. I guess my question, too, when I'm looking at all this is these are all kind of external things that they're doing, right, to change ICBC from the outside. What are they doing on the inside, though? Like, what about reining in some of those salaries? What about any kind of layoffs? Also, changing the internal attitude out there. I might go on a little rant about this, Richard, so forgive me for this. <laughs> but when you have a claim, and I'm, I'm speaking from personal experience on this, and I know numerous people, and they won't even return your phone calls, right? Like the, the attitude of the adjusters and how they deal with the public. What is ICBC doing on the inside to fix some of these problems? It's a great question. Some of those will be answered tonight on the news hour. Oh. Uh, but, you know, I think there, Nicholas Jimenez, the CEO, came in and started to shake up the culture. He's been working with David Eby to change that culture. I've had uh, two crash claims in in the last 18 months, and I found the adjusters I dealt with really, really helpful and really, really good. But I think it's probably the nature of when the person came to the corporation, That's how true. long they've been there. I've had only good, positive experiences. Mine was six years ago, so... <laughs> the, the other, and I think they're trying their best to change the culture. I think Nicholas Jimenez coming in was a big culture shift, and right. I think he's working with the brokers, with the ICBC employees. You know, there's so many questions about ICBC brokers is a whole other side of this yeah, and that's true. whether they should go online or not. The other thing is the real estate that ICBC owns. We're going to have a little bit on that tonight on the news hour as well. But, yeah. you know, the big building they have in North Vancouver is worth a lot of money. Would it ever be worth selling that building, going somewhere smaller potentially? I don't know how all of that economics work, but the public wants answers on tangible things that ICBC, like you said, is also doing internally to cut down on costs in order to ensure that you know, the numbers aren't out of control and that it doesn't get passed on to ratepayers. Right. Okay. So it sounds like I'm definitely going to be watching this story tonight <laughs> on the news hour. But before I let you go, Richard, on a completely different topic, because I know that you'll have thoughts on this as well. Uh, what is your least favorite Halloween candy? Uh, I tried an almond joy. Oh, those are delightful. What is the matter with you? <laughs> um, I, or bounty. What's my oh, least? I don't like, I, bounty. and I really don't like rockets. Okay. I'll go with you on that one. Uh, but I am a strong, strong supporter of M&Ms. I think, uh, I think I, this is where we part ways. I, I take my child's bag and I remove <laughs> all of the M&Ms before they can get their hands on it. And I also, here's another hot take. I got my mother-in-law who lives in Bellingham to bring me some American Halloween treats. That's what I sell. That's what and, I give away at my door. Yep. And I compared the Kit Kat from Canada and the United States. Ours the is way Amer better. Way better, Simmy. Like <laughs> yes. it's not even comparable. <laughs> yes. Like the American one was terrible. Ooh. Like it's basically unedible. Yes, that's true. So I don't buy those ones because I know the Canadian Kit Kat is far superior to the American Kit Kat. I will agree with you on that one. Babe Ruth, Mars, Milky, Milky Way, peppermint yeah. patties. They give little oh, York peppermint patties. The those York are good. peppermint patties, Simmy. Those are delicious. We have a box here in the global office of Halloween <laughs> candy, and I'm going to go eat them before all my colleagues can get back to the office. Well, I thank you. You're going to need it. You've got a lot of work on this ICBC story to do. So thanks for that, Richard. Yeah, thanks. Amy. That is our Richard Zussman, our Global News Online Legislative Reporter. So watch for his stories tonight on the News Hour. This next topic really fascinates me. It's this idea of all the faith that we put into our face-to-face -face interactions. You want to be able to judge for yourself whether someone is lying or telling the truth because we think we can do that. If we can just see this person for ourselves, for, with our own eyes. But what if we can't? 
Now, one area where this is a critical topic is the criminal justice system. I mean, think about that for a moment. All the judges out there, the people within the system who make decisions about incarcerating people based on their own personal assessment of whether or not someone mm, seems like a risk to reoffend or jump bail or whatever the case may be. But a new study shows that perhaps we should leave those decisions to other kinds of tools like risk assessment tools, and perhaps the outcome would be better for people, for the crime statistics, and for the overall justice system. So how could that possibly be? Well, let's find out more about a study that looked into all of this. Professor Jody Villian is with Simon Fraser University's Department of Psychology and joins us now. Well, Jody, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your study. First of all, let us know, what is it that you looked at exactly? Um, Well, um, the focus of our research was on looking at violence risk assessment tools and how when they're used, how how they affect rates of prison and rates of offending. And these tools are really important to look at because they're widely used throughout the world, including here in Canada. What kind of risk assessment tools are we talking about? Well, um, what these tools are, are basically that they compile a list of factors that we know are linked with violence, and they help professionals to kind of guide them through the process to decide if a given person poses a risk of violence to others, and if so, whether they might need to be incarcerated to protect the public. And these tools were really important because... Oftentimes in the past, these decisions were made more based on people's intuitions or hunches about who would be violent, and research found that even professionals had a very hard time predicting who would be violent. And some instant, for instance, some of the early research found that professionals were no better at chance than chance at predicting who would be violent, and basically that you'd be better off flipping right. a coin. And so what researchers did was compile all these factors to make instruments to improve these decisions. Right. So you're talking about in the case of, let's say, uh, an offender who goes before a judge to try to get bail, and it's really up to the judge at that point to decide, is this person going to reoffend? Should I let them out or should I keep them in jail? You're talking about those kinds of decisions. Yes, exactly. Okay. And do we have tools then that can take away the human factor in that? Well, um, tools aren't crystal balls, I guess. They don't help us to see into the future, and they're not 100% accurate, but studies show that they're a step in the right direction. They do improve our predictions, and they're better than the alternative, which is just to rely on our hunches or our gut reactions. Right. So what kind of tools? Like, what information do we input? What information do these tools use? Well, um, there's lots of different types of tools. Um, Some of them especially at a pretrial level, are really brief, and they include things that are pretty obvious, like history of violence and other factors, too, like anger management problems, um, prior failures, being on release, how a person's done in the past, um, substance use we know is linked with offending. So they include factors like that. Some of them, even at, at that level, might include things like age of a person because we know that younger people have higher offense rates than older people. And so there's a variety of factors that are that are on these tools. So some of them are really um, quick tools that might include like nine items, where, whereas others are more comprehensive types of tools. They might include 30 different items, and they're really designed to help 
a professional come up with a treatment plan for someone who is in, in prison or jail currently. Right. So are these tools being used? Yeah. Um, right now we know that they're being used in many places throughout the world in at least 40 countries, and um, they're being used to assess millions of offenders each year, including here in Canada. So Correctional Services Canada at a federal level uses these risk assessment tools. And then here also in BC, at a provincial level, there are also risk assessment tools that are used. So are you saying that we need to use them more? Well, our focus of our research was really on looking at how these tools impact incarceration rates um, and rates of reoffending. Like, do they make us safer with people using these tools? Do they increase rates of putting people in prison or do they decrease it? And so our research was really looking at that question, like, how are they affecting us? How are they affecting the public? And what we found is that when agencies adopt these tools, we found small decreases in the rates we put people in prison. So prison rates went down, and that's because justice agencies were better to identify those people who were low risk and didn't need to be in prison so that they could divert them from the system. But even though, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, were they diverted successfully then? Did they not reoffend? Yeah, and so even though rates of putting people in jail decreased, crime rates didn't increase. And in fact, if anything, they slightly decreased. The rates of violence and offending went down a bit, even though we're putting less people in jail. And so that kind of shows that we're able to keep incarceration rates at a minimum or to what level that they're needed without jeopardizing public safety. So then do you think it's safe then to use more of these tools or perhaps rely on these tools more within the system? Yeah, I, I think that um, this research kind of does show that using these tools have advantages. And I think just as a general principle, it makes sense that we'd want to use instruments that have been found to work and that have been scientifically tested rather than just lying on our on our gut about who needs to be in jail. So for the public, I think thinking of public safety, it seems like it's really important to use those types of approaches that we know actually are working. So I do think it's a good direction, but I don't think risk assessment tools are going to fix everything. I think there's still going to be instances where violence happens that is not prevented. Um, but they seem to allow us, compared to the alternative of just relying on our gut reactions of who to put in jail, they seem like a better choice in that regard. Right, because right now, I mean, there's a lot of pressure then on the individuals in the system, like the judges who make these decisions. Yeah, and it's very stressful for people. Yeah, they're made by lots of different professionals. They're made by judges. These decisions about who to put in jail are made by police officers, probation officers, psychologists are often involved in some of these risk assessments. And it's a lot of pressure. And I think that when we're talking about public safety, we want to make sure we're doing this carefully um, and properly. And also on the flip side, also thinking about um, people who have been charged with a crime, their rights as well. Because some of the people that we put in jail haven't yet even been found guilty of the crime. And we put lots of people in jail who may not need to be there. People with mental illnesses, people with high rates of substance use difficulties. We put 
teenagers who've made bad decisions in jail and custody centers. And so thinking about that side of things as well. Right. So this, do you think this could actually help kind of lighten the burden perhaps on the criminal justice system a little bit? Yeah. And I think this is particularly the case in the United States, which currently incarcerates more people than any other place in the world. And many of the studies that we looked at and compiled in our review were from American sites. And so in the U.S. right now, they've reached a point where the amount of people in prisons has proven to be really costly and not sustainable. And so they've been working to find ways to reduce this mass incarceration. And one of the ways that has been proposed is to use risk assessment tools to help kind of bring down incarceration rates without um, jeopardizing public safety. So and so some yep. of their new leg- yeah, some of the new legislation, like the First Step Act, which was recently passed, does even include risk assessment tools in the legislation. So interesting. Listen, Jody, thank you so much for your time on this today. Yeah, thank you so much for speaking with me. That's Professor Jody Villian with the SFU Department of Psychology. So today for the Leadership Series, we are looking at the qualities that help people lead, even when not everyone buys in or not everybody gets on board. Some leaders, as we know, can be polarizing, and yet they still get things done. One example of that, and probably the youngest example that we could find out there, would be Greta Thunberg. Have a listen. Gather round people wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone Some leaders are polarizing. Right now, we're bearing witness to the most polarizing leader in American history. If you look at a real catastrophe like Katrina, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that died. And what is your what is your death count as of this moment? 17? 16 people certified. Some other politically polarizing entertainers are Queen B. LeBron, I don't really know what I'm talking about, but I'm going to say it anyways, James. I don't want to get into a a feud with Daryl, but I believe he wasn't educated on on, on the situation at hand. Ellen DeGeneres. People were upset. They thought, why is a gay Hollywood liberal sitting next to a conservative Republican president? Didn't even notice I'm holding the brand new iPhone 11. Kenny Chesney. But his polarization is mostly in sunglass form. I'm really excited about my new line of Costa sunglasses this year. We got five new styles, including hammock, switchfoot, and Maya. But the most polarizing leader we've seen in a while next to the dawn is Greta Thunberg. We have to stop the emissions of greenhouse gases. And either we do that or we don't. You say nothing in life is black or white, but that is a lie, a very dangerous lie. Either we prevent a 1.5 degree of warming or we don't. Either we choose to go on as a civilization or we don't. That is as black or white as it gets. We must change almost everything in our current societies. Adults keep saying we owe it to the young people to give them hope. But I don't want your hope. I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. You either love her, which most normal people do, or hate her. Which is weird that you hate a 16-year-old girl. What makes people get so mad at a 16-year-old girl? Well, that's for those sad men to figure out. I'm here to talk about her as a polarizing leader and the great one she has become. Greta has managed to get the focus of the entire planet on her in a very short amount of time. But how? 
What makes her a good leader? Well, she checks all the boxes when it comes to characteristics of a good leader. Honesty. We know that most politicians don't want to talk to us. Good. We don't want to talk to them either. (laughs) We want them to talk to the scientists instead. Listen to them. When many politicians talk about the school strike for the climate, they talk about almost anything except from the climate crisis. Many people are trying to make the school strikes a question of whether we are promoting truancy or whether we should go back to school or not. They don't want to talk about it because they know they cannot win this fight. Because they know they haven't done their homework. But we have. Great communication skills. Confidence to speak in front of crowds. Not only crowds, basically the entire planet. The ability to delegate. She gave a task to every kid on the planet. The whole planet with the Friday climate strikes across the globe. Being here is a real positive feeling, a real message of hope for a generation that are tired of not having their voices heard and not being listened to and fed up with knowing of a planet that we will have to deal with unless the government decides to listen to us today and listen to the future of their own country. Agree with her or not, that is simply amazing. And only a good leader could pull it off. She has world-class confidence. Her commitment to her cause is second to none. Her intuition to see what is coming and her ability to inspire has gathered masses around the world to not only follow her, but lead with her with kids like the Sustainabilities and other groups. Only a good leader can inspire other leaders like she has. Napoleon Bonaparte once said, A leader is a dealer in hope. And that's what Greta Thunberg is doing. Inspiring hope for an entire generation and leading a path to a new future. more and more people are getting out in nature and they're exploring. That's a good thing when we have a province as beautiful as the one that we have. What's not so good? How many of those people are sampling the mushrooms out there and ending up having to deal with poisoning issues? As of the end of September of this year, there have been 201 such calls in 2019. And that compares to 202 for all of 2018 and 161 for all of 2017. So we are clearly running way ahead of track here. Poison control pharmacist Raymond Lee says about two-thirds of those calls actually involve children under the age of five. We wanted to learn more about this. Where is this happening? How do we stop this? So Raymond Lee actually joins us now with more on this. Ray, thank you so much for being here. No problem. Thanks for having me. When did you first notice that the numbers seemed to be quite up this year? Um, well, we kind of got a sense that it was uh, increasing. Just uh, uh, we, we sort of get a sense from the number of calls that we get. And uh, this year, uh, we've had a cooler summer, a wetter fall. Uh, and that sort of uh, brings out the mushrooms. 
It certainly does. So what do you think is happening? What are people getting confused? Um, well, I think uh, it's just an attractive uh, sort of um, thing. You know, nature's offering up its bounty, and uh, people perhaps are uh, unaware that um, eating unidentified mushrooms can actually cause problems, can cause toxicity. And that's really what we want to get the message out there, that um, uh, you know, people need to be careful about eating unidentified mushrooms, especially uh, we're concerned about um, the most poisonous mushroom in the world, which grows in urban centers here in Victoria, southern Vancouver Island, the Gulf Islands, uh, in Vancouver, and uh, as far east as, say, the uh, Mission and Harrison area. Right. Is that the death cap mushroom? That is the death cap mushroom, exactly. Okay, and what does that look like? Um, well, it's uh, it, it's an interesting mushroom. It, it, uh, it's very young stage. It can resemble a puffball. It kind of looks like a small egg when it's in the ground. Uh, but then as, as it matures, the, the cap of the mushroom uh, kind of erupts from the egg. And if you actually see a more mature specimen uh, with the cap and the stem and all that, the cap often has sort of a greenish hue to it. Um, there can be a ring around the stem. And uh, underneath the ground, the base of the mushroom is often a, uh, is a uh, what, what they call a cup or a vulva in, in mushroom terms. Um, but there's some good information on what the mushroom actually looks like available on the BC Center for Disease Control's website. Um, simply Google BC CDC and mushrooms, and that should you bring you to some useful links for people to actually see the mushroom in person. There's also some excellent information available on UBC's Mushrooms Up database, and the Vancouver Mycological Society uh, on their website also has some very good information about uh, the death cap mushroom. And so what do you think is happening here, Ray? Like, are people accidentally picking these and eating them, thinking that they're okay? Are they are they being ingested accidentally? Like, what's happening? Um, yeah, so there's a... There's a few different scenarios. Um, in the young children, you mentioned that two-thirds of the ingestions occur in, in young children. And in those situations, the kids are usually just uh, out in the environment um, and they come across something and kids will always put things into their mouths. So those sorts of things, it's unintentional. They're just exploring their environment. Uh, sort of same with pets as well. So dogs sometimes will eat poisonous mushrooms too. So that's sort of unintentional exposures in younger children and pets. But then we also have people who are out there foraging who actually are looking for mushrooms to use as a food source. Um, uh, and those folks are actually probably the ones who are going to run into more trouble, partly because uh, they eat more than, right. say, a child who eats a small amount. Right. So what kind of toxicity are we talking about here? Like, are there symptoms that people should look out for? Um, well, yeah, mushroom poisoning is, uh, there's a whole bunch of different uh, sort of syndromes or types of mushroom poisonings. And there are lots of uh, mushrooms, um, poisonous mushrooms out there besides the death cap. Of course, the death cap mushroom is the one that we're most concerned about because even just a small amount could cause significant toxicity, damaging the liver, Ooh. potentially being fatal if it's not uh, recognized and treated. But there's lots of other different types of mushroom uh, poisoning syndromes. Um, just to give an example, um, the death cap uh, mushroom, Amanita phylloides, uh, belongs to the genus Amanita. But within the Amanita, uh, we have uh, the 
Amnita muscaria, which is the the classic red mushroom with the white dots on it. Ah, yes, okay. Which you, yeah, which you may have seen. Uh, that mushroom causes a distinct type of poisoning symptoms. Rather than damaging the liver and the kidneys, that one affects the the nervous system uh, and can cause uh, if you eat enough of it, actually can cause coma and can be quite serious. And yet there's another amnita, the amnita smithiana, or Smith's amanita, which is often confused with the pine mushroom. And if that one is consumed, that one can damage the kidney. Okay, and that's the tricky one too, right? Because I know hunting for pine mushrooms is something that a lot of people like to do in this province. Uh, that's true, yeah. So, uh, Like, how do you know? Really- like, they may look the same, but how can you tell if you've eaten the wrong one? Like, do you get an allergic reaction? Does something happen? Like, when do you know that you should be going for help? Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I guess, it, first of all, prevention is very key. So, yes, um, you know, people have to be aware that there are mushrooms, uh, look-alike mushrooms that can be poisonous. Um, and again, um, UBC's website and the Vancouver Mycological Society's website has got some really good information about the Smith Amanita and how it can be confused with the pine mushroom. But how can people tell that uh, they're in trouble? Um, well, uh, sometimes there are symptoms like uh, stomach upsets, diarrhea. Uh, many of the mushrooms, but not all, uh, can cause some gastrointestinal upsets. Um, uh, so that might be one of the one of the signs that uh, right. people may experience that they're in trouble. Or there are some mushrooms again that can affect the nervous system. They may feel strange, uh, get drowsy, those sorts of things. Um, that's interesting. So then people are calling, are they calling because they suspect this has happened to them or do they feel like, I think I just ate something I'm not supposed to eat? Yeah, it, it, it'd say that um, it's, it's a bit of both. But the second scenario, I think I've eaten something that I shouldn't have. That, that's actually probably uh, a more common kind of call that we get. And that's one of the things that we'd like to try to prevent people from doing. Um, again, one of the key messages that I'd like to get out there is that people should not eat mushrooms they're not 100% sure of, they don't know the identity of or the edibility of. Um, so, uh, Just because they look nice doesn't mean you should eat them. That's right. <laughs> and then just because they taste good doesn't mean you should eat them. Oh, <laughs> Some see, of the poisonous that... mushrooms actually taste pretty good, apparently. Oh, that's not good. That's, that's really not good because then you would think people would know right away, but if they just eat it because it tastes good, boy, I could see how that would be a problem. Uh, Ray, thank you so much for joining us on this today. Oh, thank you very much. That's Raymond Lee, a pharmacist with the BC Centre for Disease Control's Poison Centre. Very simple message that they are putting out there today. If you are unsure, don't eat it. We also have to run through some big international stories that are happening today, and there are a couple in particular. For one, we want to get you an update on what happened uh, in the United States over the weekend. U.S. intelligence agencies are now sifting through some very highly sensitive information that they say was gathered in the U.S. raid on ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. It was his compound in northwestern Syria that was hit over the weekend. Now, President Donald Trump says that Baghdadi killed himself during that attack on Sunday. The United States say they located him by using information that had been provided Provided by prisoners. Chief Washington correspondent for CBS News, Major Garrett, reports. We know that the Army's elite Delta Force took the lead. About 70 American commandos participated in this raid. It took about 
four and a half hours. No U.S. military personnel were killed, two were injured, and there were injuries suffered by a military dog. Meanwhile, five of Baghdadi's terrorist associates were killed in the raid on the compound. He didn't die a hero. He died a coward. Crying, whimpering, screaming. And President Trump described the final moments of ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi as a contrast in terrorist bravado and American resolve. Amateur video allegedly shows the raid. The thug who tried so hard to intimidate others spent his last moments in utter fear, in total panic and dread, terrified of the American forces bearing down on him. Mr. Trump said fresh intelligence on Baghdadi's likely location and where he might move set the mission in motion three days ago. U.S. forces took off from a military base in Erbil, Iraq, flying eight helicopters, low and fast, for the roughly one-hour and ten-minute trip to the location. Once there, forces blasted a hole through the side of the compound, catching those inside by surprise. Baghdadi fled to an underground tunnel. He ignited his vest, killing himself and the three children. His body was mutilated by the blast. A test of Baghdadi's scattered remains, Mr. Trump said, confirmed the identity. The president credited cooperation from Russia, Turkey, Iraq, and Syria. Russia treated us great. They opened up. We had to fly over certain Russia areas. The Syrian Kurds, who have seen the U.S. withdraw from the country as a betrayal, also played a role. They gave us some information that turned out to be helpful. While some Republican lawmakers were notified Sunday morning about the raid, other congressional leaders, including Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, found out when the rest of the world did. It's great that we've gotten al-Baghdadi and killed him. He's a dangerous man, an evil man. The fight against ISIS has to continue. The, the raid was codenamed after Kayla Mueller, an American aid worker and one of Baghdadi's victims. On Sunday, Tony, President Trump called the families of Americans killed at the hands of ISIS. That is Washington correspondent for CBS News, Major Garrett, reporting. As we've been hearing in the news today, the numbers are in for the last fiscal year at ICBC, and they are not great. A total loss of $1.15 billion for the fiscal year that ended back on March the 31st. Now, that is an improvement over the year before, but still hundreds of millions of dollars worse than had been anticipated. So what happened and what about those numbers for this year? Well, let's get some answers to those questions now with the help of our next guest, David Eby, the Attorney General and the Minister responsible for ICBC. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You disappointed by those numbers? Well, we've known the numbers for a while, and so British Columbians, I'm not just uh, disappointed, I'm outraged uh, that the corporation was allowed to descend to this level. Um, It's taken us some time and some major reforms, but uh, in the first quarter of this year, um, ICBC was reporting break-even numbers. Uh, And uh, for Q2, we do expect that to be uh, the case as well, or close to. Uh, and so um, the the concern I have, obviously, is the fact that uh, that ICBC was allowed to get to this stage by the previous administration. Um, as part of the fiscal reports, though, um, we did release as well the payments to plaintiff uh, law firms in the province. It's the first time ICBC has reported on that. Uh, $1.9 billion in payments to plaintiff law firms, of which 30% generally on commission fees would be going to the plaintiff lawyers themselves. So that's about half a billion dollars. 
uh, a very astonishing number, uh, given the fact that uh, that, that reflects a, a massive amount of premiums paid by British Columbians that went to essentially lawyers' fees. Right, but the, even for last year, those numbers were off by what four hundred and seventy million dollars. Like, what what accounted for that? Well, the the problem is before the changes we brought in. Uh, that became effective on the first of this fiscal year that that resulted in this billion-dollar reversal at ICBC. Uh, We have a huge book of business that took place under the old rules that the previous government was content to let carry on. So every single claim that somebody had with ICBC went to B.C. Supreme Court. Uh, that is a massively uh, expensive and lengthy enterprise, uh, especially for small claims. And so now, uh, you know, when when uh, people have a claim under $50,000, they don't go to BC Supreme Court. They go to the Civil Resolution Tribunal where you have a minor injury. There's a cap on the maximum pain and suffering award that you can receive. This is an award, not your out-of-pocket money, but this is just to say you've been injured and here's some money to help you feel a little better about it. There's a cap on that of $5,500. We were the last province in Canada to bring that in. So really big changes to turn around the numbers that you're seeing in this uh, financial report from last year. Um, and uh, and we're making progress, but uh, but it is slow progress, and I accept that. But I, I think we've come a long way, given that we're near break even right now. Do you think then that we that's the last time we're going to see big numbers like that? You know what? I, there are some real fragilities in the in the changes we've made. I mean, we saw a court decision just uh, last week, uh, a challenge to a rule uh, that we amended that limited the number of court experts that you could use on an automobile claim and uh, and by extension all tort claims to address an access to justice issue in our in our legal system um, that had some beneficial effects for ICBC to the order of about 400 million dollars uh, and we lost that case uh, and so we're studying that case there there are going to be setbacks like this um, as we move to fix the system um, and it's one of the reasons why I think the previous government didn't do it because it's hard work uh, and it will take some time and we'll get there we hear a lot about kind of what's going on on the outside, the changes that you've made, but what about what's going on on the inside? Has the eternal mindset also changed on the inside about dealing with ICBC's customers? Yeah, so there's there's two parts to that. One is, uh, I, I think, um, one is the challenge that people have had when they've called up ICBC trying to get yeah. help and they can't get someone on the phone and they can't get uh, their, their claim dealt with. We've increased the number of people who are assisting people with their claims. We've increased the benefits that are available to people. What we want to have is people resolving their problems that come out of their car collision without having to hire a lawyer because as soon as they hire a lawyer, we know the costs go up dramatically. And so... Uh, we've increased the number of staff dealing frontline, but at the same time, we've decreased the number of managers and executives and people earning more than $100,000. Uh, and, and we've decreased those numbers by about a third. Um, so while we've increased the number of frontline staff, we've de- decreased the bloat over, overhead, which is really important. The second is uh, is fraud. You know, we uh, uh, have a have challenges with fraud, just like all other insurers uh, across Canada. And ICBC has increased the number of investigators that they have to crack down on fraud within uh, British Columbia, people making false claims and so on, auto body shops, overbilling and so on. Right. So do you think that culture change is happening? Because I'm just, I'm speaking from personal experience on that. I remember it wasn't too long ago, four or five years ago, I couldn't even get somebody on the phone to ask some basic questions. Yeah, that that lines up uh, exactly almost with a decision uh, made by ICBC and the previous government to dramatically cut the frontline staff, which resulted in a significant number of people deciding who previously would have gone through their claim by themselves dealing with ICBC to hire a lawyer and take ICBC to court, which uh, was part of what lit the dumpster fire, in my opinion, here. So many people having to go to court to resolve things instead of just dealing with what insurance is meant to pay for in the first place. Are you surprised? Like when you use that phrase dumpster fire, you were obviously trying to illustrate the problem here. But here we are a couple of years later and it gets used all the time. Are you surprised that that has stuck so well? 
you know, I think it had a, had a real resonance because oh, it people did. feel, yeah, people feel like, yeah, I, I don't understand uh, why you can't put this thing out. Why is this so hard? I mean, ICBC has a monopoly uh, in the province. How is it that the government is able to lose a billion dollars on something you've got a monopoly on? And it's really a function of how badly neglected it was over the last uh few years of the previous administration when everybody saw this coming, and yet uh, there was a huge effort to cover up what was happening. And, uh, and it was a systematic and, uh, and very deliberate effort to cover it up. Uh, and so we're fixing it, but it does take time. And there are people who, are, who are, have a stake in the current system who are fighting it really aggressively in court and outside of court. So uh, we're doing what we can t- uh, to get it back on track. And we're making some good progress. I'll assure your listeners, uh, you know, this, this first quarter of showing no loss at ICBC is a good one, but rates are still too high. And we need our, our second phase really is getting rates down for British Columbians. And how do we do that? Well, there's a number of pieces that we have that we're rolling out, including improving uh, road safety. We've increased uh, uh, policing. Uh, we put additional money into policing. We've uh, put speed detection uh, at uh, high crash collisions with big signs saying if you speed or go through the red light at this intersection, you're going to get a ticket. We don't want to collect money from it. We want people just to slow down when they drive through it. We have telematics, which is for younger and experienced drivers that they can take in their car that will measure sudden corners and and braking that's consistent with, or use of their cell phone that's consistent with increasing the number of collisions. There are a number of pieces that we're rolling out. We're also looking at uh, reforms around the court system to make sure that uh, legal expenses are under control, uh, which is a huge factor. One in four dollars paid out by CBC is going to legal costs. So uh, there's an opportunity for us to drive costs down there. But do you actually think that rates will ever get lower? Because I don't think people can even remember the day when they ever saw their rates go down. Well, you know, we look across the country and, and uh, all of the jurisdictions uh, that have private insurance uh, systems, uh, Alberta and Ontario in particular, but Newfoundland, New Brunswick, are seeing double-digit increases. And there's a number of reasons for that. People are uh, driving while distracted. They're looking at their phones. They're causing more collisions. There are more injuries per collision in the cars uh, that people are driving. have more sensors in them. They're more expensive to repair and on and on. But there are jurisdictions, Manitoba and Saskatchewan, with public insurers that have uh, either zeros or 1% increases, which is kind of hard to imagine as British Columbians. So yeah. there is room for us to improve. We have a public insurer and we can get there, I think. All right. So then what are the next steps that are going to be visible, do you think, to people? What's the next thing we have to get used to? Well, the big changes uh, in terms of the, the court system have been made. We have the uh, the Civil Resolution Tribunal. So people who have these minor uh, injuries will be going through. I mean, they, they may feel significant for them, but uh, there are more minor injuries in terms of the kinds of injuries you can have in a collision. They'll be going to the Civil Resolution Tribunal instead of BC Supreme Court. And we'll have our first full year of report out on how that's going in terms of driving costs down. For young drivers, they'll have the opportunity, and any young drivers or parents of young drivers uh, can register with ICBC to participate in the telematics project, and we hope that it will be successful, as it's been in other jurisdictions, so that young people or inexperienced drivers can take these uh, apps on their phones that will help them reduce their insurance rates because they're driving more carefully. We're doing driver training improvements on uh, on both uh, uh New drivers as well as commercial drivers, truck drivers, You've, your listeners have surely heard the stories about uh, about the lack of training and the Humboldt Broncos example being one rather uh, tragic and dramatic one in another province. But we have that issue in our province, too, of ensuring truck drivers are properly trained. So there's a whole bunch of pieces rolling out uh, and that will continue to roll out. You mentioned young drivers there. We've had a lot of stories in recent weeks about the astronomical increases that some of those young drivers are facing with their ICBC you know, insurance. Any tweaking of that to offer any kind of relief to those people? So a number of, uh, of younger drivers will see increases, uh, or inexperienced drivers is actually the case, but uh, they tend to be 
significantly younger drivers will see an increase in their basic insurance. Uh, the increases range from about $100 to about $350, depending on where you are in the province. That's a month, It right? is a significant, no, uh, in their basic insurance. Um, that's the maximum $350 that any uh, inexperienced driver faces on their basic insurance in the province uh, if they don't have any collisions on their record. Um, I, there, the news reports focus on optional insurance, which is where um, people are trying to buy collision insurance or third-party extended liability. The private sector competes with ICBC there. It's really expensive to provide that insurance to drivers who are who cause one in four in, of the accidents in the province, which is inexperienced drivers. And so the cost uh, reflects a little bit more, but still not the entire cost of insuring, insuring in, inexperienced drivers. They're still subsidized uh, by other drivers in the province. And what we're trying to do is help people make good decisions about, do we really need collision insurance? Do we need to buy a car that requires collision insurance? Because it's very expensive to provide it, and, and really, uh, should it be subsidized by uh, other drivers in the province? So you're saying there's no changes coming to that, then people need to look at perhaps other options for their optional insurance? That's right. We're, we're pricing insurance uh, closer to the actual risk that drivers present on the road, whether it's because they're inexperienced drivers or they have multiple speeding tickets or they have impaired tickets. These are higher risk drivers and they are going to be paying more for insurance, which is still uh, more than we'd like. And we'd like to see those rates uh, come down generally um, as part of our larger project, but they will continue to pay more proportionally compared to other drivers. So just before we let you go then, so just to recap, these numbers are, of course, from the last fiscal year, but do you feel that ICBC is on the right track for this year? Yes. Um, so for quarter one this year, ICBC was still projecting a break-even year, and we have every reason to believe that that will continue. I mean, it, uh, barring a successful challenge to the, infra- the core infrastructure of our change, which was the Civil Resolution Tribunal and the Limit on Pain and Suffering Awards, and, and that legislation is being challenged in the courts. Uh, that is the billion-dollar uh, reversal legislation, and, uh, and that has put ICBC back on track uh, to break even with existing rates. Um, and so, you know, it's, it, as I say, it is fragile and, uh, and it's dependent on what happens in the court. But, um, but we are uh, hopeful, given that uh, reforms like this have taken place in other provinces, that we will be successful in court and that those changes will stick in terms of the impact on uh, ICBC's financials. The bigger project, as I said, remains getting rates down for British Columbians. And when does that go to court? Uh, we don't have a date for the for the first challenge to it yet. All right. I guess we'll be hearing more. Thank you so much for your time. You bet. Thanks for having me. That's David Eby, Attorney General of BC and, of course, Minister Responsible for ICBC. We've been talking today about ICBC and for good reason. The fiscal year that ended last March 31st showed ICBC running in the red, about $1.15 billion worth of red ink, actually. Now, we just heard from the minister responsible, David Eby, that he believes they're on the right track. He says that pretty much through the second quarter of this fiscal year, ICBC is breaking even. But are they on the right track? Well, let's talk more about this now with Todd Stone, who was once in charge of ICBC, is now the opposition critic for municipal affairs and housing. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, I'm, I'm happy to join you today, Simi. Okay, so how do you feel about these numbers that we're hearing about from ICBC today? Well, I think the uh, uh, the proof will really be in the pudding um, once we, we see the entire year's results. Um, uh, if we look at the results that were released today, um, you know, ICBC lost uh, $1.15 billion uh, in the fiscal year. It's about $2.8 million a day. Um, that is against a backdrop of, um, uh, of, of a number of uh, reforms that, uh, that the Attorney General has tried to make, which have failed miserably, at least the, the last uh, being this 
uh, tossed out by the courts uh, last week. Uh, and of course, rates uh, are going through the roof. Um, we, we have seen rates increase by 18% in the first uh, two and a half years of this government, and they're projected to increase uh, by another 24% over the next three years. So, uh, uh, you know, we'll, we'll believe the numbers when we see them, uh, but certainly motorists aren't feeling uh, that uh, the situation's getting any better for them. Uh, their premiums are, uh, are, are going through the roof. You said you believe the reforms have failed miserably, but what do you think could have been done better then? Well, uh, when, uh, when, when the transfer of power took place uh, in uh, uh, 2017, uh, there was a, uh, a third-party independent review uh, that had been conducted, uh, the most comprehensive uh, ever in ICBC's history, that was sitting on the Attorney General's desk uh, waiting for him. Um, unfortunately, he took that, that report, which had a, a broad range of recommendations in it, uh, and he threw it out, uh, threw it out the window and, and uh, proceeded to do his own review. And that, uh, in and of itself, wasted an entire year of, of time. Uh, there were uh, a, a wide range of, uh, of initiatives that were detailed uh, in that report, um, and I'm talking about uh, you know things like uh, uh, changes to the to the uh, to the court rules to speed up the timeliness of claims in the system. Of course, you can't you can't do that without uh, the the support and approval and the consultation of the of the judges. Uh, it, it called for um, uh, much higher premiums for for reckless driving, much tougher distracted driving, uh, uh, a significant uh, increase in uh, road safety uh, programs, uh, uh, tougher fraud detection and penalties, and so forth. There's, there's a very extensive list, and, and the vast majority of this stuff uh, the government um, hasn't acted on. Instead, uh, they've implemented a new driver risk model, which um, is penalizing um, uh, families uh, because they have uh, you know, young drivers uh, uh, in, in the household. It's penalizing seniors. It's penalizing people because of, uh, of where, what their, their postal code is in the province, where they live. Uh, and um, and and as a result, uh, you know, rates are going through the roof, and and we'll we'll see if the government, uh, at the end of the day, is able to bring uh, ICBC um, in, into a semblance of a of a sustainable right. path. That certainly is the commitment of the Attorney General, uh, and we'll we'll see if he uh, if, if he fulfills it. But you know, Mr. Stone, by 2017, we were pretty far down the hole of you know debt for ICBC. Uh, why wasn't something done about this in years past? Like when you were the minister in charge, you must have known that there were big problems at ICBC financially. Oh, there is no question that uh, there have been strong headwinds uh, facing ICBC for uh, for a lot of years. Um, not just uh, not just uh, um, you know the time that we were in power. Certainly not just the time that the NDP have been in power. Um, at the at the end of the day, we threw uh, in my time as the minister, we threw over three billion dollars worth of initiatives uh, at uh, ICBC uh, to keep rates low and. Um, you know, I could rattle off all kinds of things that we did from our transformation program to enhance fraud tools to uh, increasing luxury car premiums, procurement strategy changes, road safety investments, on and on the list goes. Um, I make no apologies for the fact that uh, we were focused uh, 100% on keeping rates down uh, for drivers. Uh, so over that, uh, f- uh, the last 10 years of our government, rates, uh, the combined rate increase was about 18%. Uh, we've had an 18% rate increase under the NDP in two and a half years. Uh, so again, uh, our focus was always to keep rates down. Uh, the NDP, uh, while uh, while they've said they've made, uh, they're 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 trying to do that as well. Uh, in fact, they said two thirds of all drivers will pay less with this driver risk model. We sure as heck aren't meeting very many British Columbians who are paying less. Right, but at, uh, at what, going forward, at what cost did we keep those rates low? Like, did we not fix any of the systemic problems that left us so much in debt in ICBC? I mean, is that not a, a false illusion then for people? 
Well, look, um, when when the transfer of power took place uh, in 2017, uh, the uh, projection at ICBC and the first update of the, the NDP government was that ICBC was, was going to lose $225 million. Again, there was a, um, a, a very comprehensive third-party report that was on David Eby's desk. Uh, he opted to throw that in the trash can and not proceed with any uh, of, of its recommendations and, in fact, didn't act for, for a year thereafter. Um, in November 2017, the loss was restated um, to 364 million, uh, and then a few months later, it was restated to 1.3 billion. Um, this is on uh, the NDP. This is on the the Attorney General. Um, uh, it's up to him and, and his government to uh, to fix uh, the, um, uh, the the corporation moving forward, um, uh, or or to be open to uh, to uh, perhaps thinking outside the box here. And part of what we're saying now is. Uh, you know, we we threw three billion dollars worth of initiatives at the corporation. Um, we left uh, the corporation uh, uh, in a in a situation where yes, there are significant headwinds um, with 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 uh, the cost of claims increasing and the uh, the, uh, the the legal costs associated with those claims increasing, crashes up uh, and so forth. Um, uh, but uh, but we certainly uh, did not leave uh, a situation with uh, with the current government that uh, is as they are advertising it at this point, and you know, I've, I for two and a half years now, I have, uh, uh, I have um, uh, listened to and been very restrained in my in my response to, um, you know, what have often been very vicious allegations and very uh, almost smear character smear uh, uh, attempts on the part of the Attorney General, who um, has made it an art form uh, last uh, Thursday in the chamber. Uh, he went so far as to um, as, as to actually. Uh, 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 use my name uh, in a very derogatory fashion in in the chamber, and so while he 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 uh, opts to uh, th- uh, hurl insults uh, uh, at people and point fingers, um, uh, you know what what motorists want to want to know is what are you going to do for my rates? What right, are you going to do to keep my rate my rates affordable? But Mr. Trump, uh, why hold back? Uh, like I think wh- where they're where they're failing. Why the restraint then on your part? Then if you felt like you had done better or you had done a good job or things could could have been done you know better, why hold back? Why not just say that? Uh, I, Simi, I, 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 when I say I held back, I've held back uh, uh, in uh, uh, in in the chamber to a certain extent. Uh, I certainly have not uh, uh, held back uh, in in um, in lots of speaking engagements and lots of uh, conversations that I've had um, uh, with with British Columbians, not just in my own riding, but across the province. And and I think as a team, uh, we have been uh, talking about. Uh, the 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 situation. Um, while there were were headwinds at the corporation, there's no question about it. Uh, again, make no apologies for the fact that that uh, under our tenure, uh, we kept rates as affordable as we possibly could. But um, is, is there something uh, you wish but, that you but, had done differently? When you look back now and you think, okay, we should have done this, or maybe we should have tried this. Uh, I think that um, again, uh, we did uh, we did a tremendous amount of uh, of hard work, uh, and and that was uh, that was uh, emblematic in the uh, in in the fact that we kept rates uh, affordable. Um, we, uh, we we now have a government that uh, promised to keep rates uh, down. In fact, to lower them for two thirds of British Columbians, and um, uh, and that's not happening. Rates will have gone up by about forty percent over a four to five year period under under the NDP. Um, they've had uh, the the judiciary uh, they declared war on, on on lawyers. They've now declared war on the judiciary. The judiciary has 
slapped them back pretty hard because uh, the Attorney General screwed up again uh, with his uh, uh, his uh, approach on on the unilaterally sy- changing court rules. And, but the system wasn't sustainable uh, and, and, the way it was. You can't just have all these cases continually going to court and the costs rising. Like, surely you can see that that could not have continued like that. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. That's why we did $3 billion worth of initiatives. That's why we, um, we commissioned that uh, independent third-party report, uh, which... Uh, I called for a, a wide range of additional uh, initiatives that needed to be undertaken uh, and that we were prepared to, to seriously consider. Um, the, the, uh, the, the, the one year that was lost because David Eby opted to play politics with this, uh, with this file uh, and to engage in a, in a smear campaign uh, against, uh, against me and other members of the former government. And politics is politics. That, that happens um, all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, if you put one-tenth of the effort into actually focusing on motorists and what uh, what needs to happen to, to actually keep rates down uh, as he does uh, uh, trying to uh, uh, take uh, political, uh, uh, you know, throw mud and, and take political personal shots at, uh, at members of the opposition, motorists would probably be better off for it. Uh, he's he's the, the, the minister responsible today. They've been in power for two and a half years. Uh, it's it's uh, it's their it's their job to uh, to to fulfill the commitments that they've made to the, the motorists of this province and to taxpayers of this province, and uh, you know, we think to this point uh, they're 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 failing uh, terribly. So, Mr. Stone, before I let you go, let me just ask. Let's be clear here. So, are you are comfortable then? It sounds like with the record of the BC Liberals on ICBC. Uh, I am. Uh, I, I make no apologies for the fact that we spent. Uh, every waking moment, uh, certainly in the four years that I was the minister, and I think prior to that as well, uh, to keep rates as affordable as possible. When you look at the rates, we were talking an 18% rate increase over a 10-year, the last 10 years of our government. Uh, the NDP have increased uh, rates by that amount uh, in the first uh, two and a half years of, their, of, of this existing mandate. Um, we did a lot. Uh, what was our record perfect? What, did, uh, it, it, what, did we do everything that we, um, you know, that we would have liked to have done? No, I've never said that either. Uh, but uh, the characterization of uh, of the of the work that we did and our commitment to keeping rates affordable uh, to motorists um, is something that we're just uh, uh, we're 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 not going to sit here and and allow the the attorney general to continue to smear us um, on that and I think the facts uh, speak uh, for themselves. Um, it's now time for the government to step up to the plate and to fulfill the commitments that they've made, uh, and that was first and foremost to keep rates affordable. Uh, for British Columbians. Uh, that's, that's the piece when you talk to families, you talk to seniors, you talk to, to motorists all over the province, that's the piece uh, that, uh, that folks want to know that the government's on top of. And I think through successive uh, uh, you know, uh, issues, uh, the last one being last week, uh, I think the, the, the Attorney General has, has certainly uh, created the, uh, the perception that he may not be up to the task uh, in terms of delivering on, on lower rates for, for the motorists of British Columbia. Uh, Mr. Stone, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Timmy. That is Todd Stone, the BC Liberals critic for municipal affairs and housing. And of course, he was also at one time the minister in charge of ICBC. And you heard him responding to that.